Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. I have to say, I absolutely love this book, Adventures in Modern Recording. And I loved it as much for the uh, stories about how its author produced the soundtrack of the 80s with Frankie and Grace Jones and uh, ABC and Dollar and countless others, as for the discovery that he started out as the bass player in various dance bands on the top rank circuit supporting uh, Tommy Cooper and, and Tiny Tim. It really is the definition of, of a colourful life. It's fantastic. Trevor Horn, how lovely to see you. Nice to see you guys. I haven't seen you for a while. Yeah. How are you? OK. Yeah, I can't complain. Good. And why, why, why the book now? I mean, is this a lockdown thing? Did you, did you always want to write the book and suddenly you had time to do it or what? I don't know. You, you know, I, I wrote four of the chapters about 10 years ago and, and everybody got excited for a moment. I thought, oh, I'm going to have a book out. And then it, nothing happened uh, for, for years. And so I completely forgot about it. And then suddenly this, you know, just, just to, to start lockdown, this company came on like gangbusters in the book, you know? So it sort of inspired me to finish it, really. Well, it's fantastic. And we, we traditionally start by asking people if they can remember the record-playing equipment in their home when they were growing up. This was Durham for you, I think, wasn't it? Can you remember the record-playing equipment and what might have been on it from your parents? Yes, there was a, a dance set. Um, um, I forgot what it was called, uh, auto player, so you could stack six singles on, on it. That that it, it was um, it was my sister's, but that's that was the best thing that we had with one elliptical speaker in it. And your dad was in a dance band, wasn't he? The the Joe Clark band. Which... Well, he was in a, he was in a few. That's how you know he was what, yeah. what was called back in the day semi pro. You know, meaning that he did a day job and he worked in the evenings. So I didn't see him, you know, for years. I never saw much of him. So he was always going out to work. Can you remember going to see him on stage as a, as a child? Or can you go? I mean, Elvis oh. Costello always writes about his dad in the Joe Loss Orchestra very, very movingly about what it was like to see him playing when he was 10. Did you ever get to see your dad? Oh, well, of course, yeah. Elvis Costello's father was Declan McManus, wasn't he? Yeah. 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 Who, was a, who was a singer. Well, yeah. Ross McManus, uh, yeah. I, I remember that. Uh, 
Yeah, because Pete Townsend's father was Cliff Townsend, who was like the top tenor player in England. Yeah. With Ted Heath Band. Um, yeah, I used to go and see my dad play, and I used to sometimes get up, get up and, de- you know, he used to let me get up and play a couple of songs. Um, they were, you know, dance bands were, a, were, a, were quite a thing. My father was into people like Neil Hefty and uh, All right. Benny Goodman, you know. Um, and I mean, those bands, they reached incredible heights in the 50s. That's why all of those musos were so shocked at rock and roll. <laughs> So, so well, these upstarts who couldn't play. So, <laughs> so where did where did you stand as you were growing up? As regards that kind of chasm between traditional musicians and and rock and roll bands, where did you where did you where did I stand? I tell you yeah. where I stood. Absolutely. Um, um, playing old shit earned you money. Playing in rock bands didn't earn you anything, apart from a pain in the neck. And yeah. I, I used to think. When I was about 16 or 17, I tried being in a couple of bands, but they were all sort of obsessed with playing the blues. But they were kind of white and they lived in Leicester. I could never, to me, I couldn't see the relevance of the blues to them, you know. Right. And yet they took it incredibly seriously. I tried taking it seriously, but I, I couldn't. You see, I was used to think blues songs were in strange keys. Like, I thought Sonatine Blues was in F. Because whenever you played it with a dance band, they they put it in in F, because then the horn players were in G. You know, if 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 you're in the key of E, you're um, sorry, things pop up. If you're in the key of, of of E, the horn players are in six sharps. It's no good. So I, it, rock and roll used to baffle me. How the hell do they play this? And then of course I realised the fucking thing's in E. Of course, it's a piece of piss to play. Not in so what was what was describe what life was like in those dance bands? Because presumably you had to learn a whole load of new covers every week of all the new hits. No, I never learned anything. I used to just sight read it. I, you see, the thing was, I learned as I learned to play the bass guitar. Um, I learned to sight read the music. When I started out, it was pretty easy. Bass, you played, you know, boom, 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 or boom, 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 with the odd boom, boom phrase in there, maybe. So I could I could I could read and uh, the you know as I as I sort of got to be seventeen or eighteen, there were there were jobs where you could uh, get 50, you know thirty pounds a week playing, which was much better than working in an office. <laughs> Rock and roll, you had to go and starve for ages, and then maybe you made it. And at one stage you were on a uh, was it was it uh, was it Ray McVeigh's band? You were actually on a Ray McVeigh's I think it was Party Hits album where you sang "Long Haired Lover from Liverpool." Is that right? Yeah, that used to be one of mine. I used to sing all the crap ones, all the ones that nobody ever wanted to sing. "Long Haired yeah. Lover from Liverpool" being the perfect example it was a right piece of shit. That one I remember. Uh, I used to do that and push bike song. Remember that one? Right. Yeah. Right and the long on a push bike, honey. Yeah. Another big one that I used to do that nobody else wanted to do was Hi Ho Silver Lining. Oh, oh yeah. of course. Yeah. Of course. So I used to do all. I used to do all the throwaways. Ray McVeigh. I mean, that Ray McVeigh was a, a really good job for uh, earning money. You know, back in twenty. I was twenty-five, so it would have been very early seventies. I was earning one hundred and fifty quid a week. It's good money. Yeah, very good money. Yeah. So it wasn't until uh, you, you'd had quite a long career before you kind of started to, to make 
records in your own right. Is that fair to say? You know, and that's the Buggles, is it really? The Buggles was was the first, really the first thing because you know when I was about twenty five, I started I started producing things. I started doing a lot of work for a couple of guys in Denmark Street, but it took me quite it took me a long time because after a couple of years, I realised that I wasn't going to. Uh, Nobody really good was going to come and ask me to produce them because they don't unless you, you've got some kind of a track record. So I thought, well, I'm probably going to have to write the song and then probably sing it myself to get something off the ground, you know, which is kind of what happened. And that ascent of Buggles is so, so rapid, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing. I mean, you were just a huge hit all over the world. There's lovely bits where you're being ferried all over the place. And Brian Ferry comes up to you at one point, I think, somewhere yeah. in Europe and tells you how much he likes the record. And, uh, you know, that's why do you think it, it it struck a chord, that record? Was it the video? Was it the song? Was it What, what, what was it about Buggles that appealed? I think, I think the record was just one of those really catchy records. Yeah. I mean... You, you know, to come from absolutely nowhere with no track record, the record's going to be very, very attractive. And you only really, you only see a couple of those in your life, you know, because most, most if you think about it, most successes come from um, somebody, you know, bands or singers who've had, a, you know, put in a lot of work before, before the, so, I mean, not that we didn't, but, I think I think what it was we sort of distilled everything that Jeff and I had learned in or I'd learned in the previous four or five years, put it into that record. Um, I, the other thing was I think because it wasn't about love. Yes. You think about it, yeah. there aren't many songs that aren't about love. Yeah. Um, because I was at the gym this morning, and I was you know working you know work, working out, and they were playing some some. Uh, dance music like some chic thing or something like that and it just reminded me of how banal most lyrics and songs are especially dance songs oh god they're dreadful <laughs> you know um you mean no wonder Nile Rogers thought uh, tremble like a flower was an embarrassing line because I mean if you, if you you know the actual literary content of chic up to that point had been fairly limited I would suggest <laughs> you know Everybody dance, yeah. Clap yeah. your hands, clap your hands. I think that's why Martin Fry was so good. You know, he managed to actually put some interesting lyrics to it. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the other thing with Buggles, with that hit, is it's just because that message, video killed the radio star, has just kind of hung on, hasn't it? You know what I mean? Because it came along the time that pop videos coming out and so forth, you know, so... It, but it didn't do it. I mean, it didn't kill the video store. No, no, no. Because be, in, in fact, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I really enjoyed MTV for the first couple of years and then I'd avoid it like the plague. Yeah. Really. yeah. If you think of all the records that you really loved, I mean, like, like for instance, one of my all-time favourite records is Like a Rolling Stone, you know? I, it's still, if, I, if I've got five minutes, I'll, I'll listen to it. I don't want to see a video. With it. No, no. Yeah. With a cut to the piano player playing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. cut to the guitar player playing, you know, bullshit. So, you know, um, so I think it died very quickly. 
You must tell us the very brief the story of, of uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart. It's a fantastic chapter in the book because, yes, your great heroes have asked you to produce the record. You said you would only do it if you heard this song, which you'd heard right at the end of a tape. It was a kind of they, they weren't recommending that as being on the record in the first place, were they? Oh, they thought it was too poppy for yes. But I thought I was really convinced that they needed to do it. Um, I, I could feel that the 80s that the old rock bands, you know, I, I thought Genesis did a really good job of moving with the times. Yeah. You know? They suddenly, they were very modern, you know, that follow you, follow me record was, was really, it was good. Uh, yeah. And I thought, yes, needed to do the same thing, but I thought that song was a hit for them. It was just, the problem was just getting them to play it very simply. Once they got the idea in their heads that they were going to do it, they did a good job of it. But just to get them to go bomb, 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 was really tough. They they wanted to do bomb, 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 you know, anything but just that simple thing. And yeah, I think I say in the book, I had to get a bit carried away. I had to crawl around on the floor and cry, not cry, but make noises. Please, You're literally please begging them, do. weren't you? Begging them, yeah. You must have felt so vindicated when it was a success then because they didn't believe you, did they? It was the number one record in America. I knew it would be. Um, I felt, yeah, of course I felt vindicated. Uh, but, you know, there's an old saying, if you're getting away with it, keep your mouth shut. Um, so I never went like, you know, I, never, <laughs> I told you. <laughs> yes, so, I never do that. It's pointless. So is, is that a key part of the producer's art, is the diplomacy involved in dealing with people and uh, convincing people that it's their idea when it might not be? Is that, is that, is that the case? Well, sometimes some uh, convincing them is it. Oh, I don't think afterwards yes ever claimed it was their idea to do it. Uh, Trevor Rabin was dead, dead against it, um, and he'd written it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so bizarre. <laughs> Think how well uh, he did out of that. <laughs> exactly, but yeah, you you know you you're, you're always. Uh, I mean, on that particular record, John Anderson would come in and sing something, and then there'd be much consternation, and I would have to negotiate. I remember one of the lines which made it to the record were, was "Do do 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 be ye circle." Be circle, which is quite an interesting line. I always remember the crew playing snooker with the crew. Be ye fucking circle. <laughs> Be ye circle. What's he about? Yeah, that was Nunu, the head roadie. The what the guy that said the drum sounded like a pea on a barrel. Um, yeah, old rock bands, man. You, I'm sure you you have you could write books about them. This they're good fun, but you can't help but like them. That's the funny thing. I really liked Jess, and even when I got to know them and they were a pain in the neck, I still really liked them. So, <laughs> and then you joined, you were in the band, weren't you? And then when they were fired, for, they thought you weren't good enough. And that was what made you decide, I don't want to be a performer anymore, I want to be a producer. Is that right? Kind of, yeah. It was a bit like going from the, you know, it was sort of ridiculous, really, because, you know, I, I, I had no idea. I'd never had a, I never had a singing lesson in my life. And, uh, I, funny thing is that, that over the past sort of four or five years, I've learned a lot more about singing. And uh, I, I had so many things wrong. Um, but it, it, it was a hard job to go into because John Anderson's got a very weird, 
very special voice. I mean, it's very high. Yeah. But um, it sounds, I mean, I always liked it, you know. Uh, so it was a bit of a tough call, really, going into that. And, you know, yes, I'm just saying those, all those high notes, 44 shows in a row. It was ridiculous, really. So you, you, during the 80s, you know, you developed a reputation that people say, Trevor Horn's producing them. It's a Trevor Horn production. And that, that carried with it certain expectations, didn't it? Yeah. What do you think people's expectations were of a Trevor Horn production? That, that, it's, that it's some kind of hit, but uh, or, that, or that they like it. I don't know, you know, some, I, I did the book launch last night, so I, I, got, I, I had to meet a lot of people, which is not something I normally do. And a couple of people said to me, you know, we knew that you'd done the bubbles, but we never knew that you'd done, and uh, you know, like um, Malcolm McLaren, Buffalo Girls, I got the record and I said you should have looked at the record. Yeah. Their records are quite different, really, if you think about it. Uh, ABC wasn't the same as the Malcolm McLaren album, and Frankie Goes to Hollywood weren't like ABC. And yes, we're completely different too. Uh, but there was a kind of flashiness to it, I suppose, some of it that wasn't there before. There's a kind of drama in, in it, wasn't yeah. there? Yeah. 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 There's a bit yeah. where you said that you had a, a pictorial sense with ABC of what the track should sound like. What did you mean by that? What, what well, were you thinking? If I was stuck, if, if I was stuck to know, try to figure out what to do with the song, I was used to say, where is it happening? Who is singing it to whom? And I would imagine it like it was a song in a musical. You know the way songs in musicals yeah. pop up? I would think, well, which musical is this one in? What's going on? And that would give me some kind of idea was the reason I was always more interested in the lyrics. You know, the music's kind of always the same, but the lyrics and how the music bends to fit the lyrics is what really changes all the time. If you think of all the songs that you really like, particularly rock songs, they very rarely break any new musical ground. It's the lyric. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's like a catchy thing, you know, there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. 
Yeah. Good line, you know. Good golly, Miss Molly. Yeah. Lucky yeah. golly, my Molly. You know, it's like a, <laughs> that's that's. Uh, so I, I, I was also doing stuff, uh, doing stuff that not a lot of initially in the eighties that not a lot of producers were doing because they, they didn't understand the new technology. You had to own it to understand it. Yes, because these in the days of the fair lights and then and so forth. These were hugely expensive toys, weren't they? Yeah, They're very they were, very few what people. What did you pay for your fair? It was eighteen thousand pounds, was it? Eighteen thousand. Yeah, which is a lot of money at the time, wasn't it? But it oh. gave you a kind of unique sound, and it, it it meant that you had something completely unique to offer as a producer, didn't it? Well, I mean, to be honest, it was all I was interested in. So I mean, you know, once you've got a half decent car. I've never fancied a Ferrari or anything like that, you know. So once I had a decent car, and I'm not that obsessed with clothes either. So um, it, it was probably the best 18 grand I ever I ever spent. Just before I bought it, I got a call from a company called New England Digital that made the Synclavier, you know. Um, the Synclavier was more expensive. And there's a guy called Brad Naples who ran the company. And I always remember him saying... Trevor, I hear that you're buying a Fairlight and I would like to recommend the Synclavier to you. If you're looking for gimmicks and quick, quick things, then the Fairlight's for you. But if you're looking for a proper scientific tool, then you need the Synclavier. I say, well, I'm getting the Fairlight because I want cheap gimmicks. <laughs> That's, what I've got to say. Cheap yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> There's a whole section about, obviously, about you uh, producing Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It's fantastic. You did the whole of the Relax track pretty much overnight. Isn't that right? And just went one yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. It was just one of those. Yeah. I thought of, I thought about that so much afterwards, wondering whether I should have said that we smoked some pot and should I have done it? Uh, should I have said it? Uh, am I going to make people think that all you need to do is smoke some pot and you can make a great record? But then I, when I thought about it, I thought, no, no, no. I'd worked on that song for three weeks before that afternoon. I'd done three other versions of it. I was sick of it, you know. I knew it from one end to the other. So it was just rearranging some of the bits, you know. But it, and it, it was all, you know, that's the great thing about pop music. That's why I never liked film scores. You know, film scores are massive undertaking. And, you know, he... <laughs> It's, it's like being part of a team and there's lots of things you've got to do. You can't just go in and fix it all. But with a single, you can do what we did, you know, just suddenly start again on a Tuesday afternoon and have the whole thing finished by five o'clock the next morning, you know? You talk about having two regrets about Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Can you tell us what those two regrets were? Well, the two regrets, one of them was not putting the band on Relax playing because it would have been really easy to do. And... They could play, you know, after after they heard the record, they they could play relax really well live, you know, with a bit of track behind them. And I thought I think that unnecessarily gave, you know, music journalists and you know the, you know, the newspapers always loved that story. Any, you know, they loved that, you know, so and so didn't play on their record story because the band did appear on it, but only as a sample of them jumping into a swimming pool, wasn't that yeah, right? Yeah, they did. You know, Holly, yeah. Paul, and, and Holly, Paul, of course, yeah, sang, yeah. On it, sang on it. But uh, you know, that that was one of my regrets, and the other. But also because you felt they they weren't that committed to promoting it because they weren't on it, you felt it was a bit it was an element of that, wasn't it? 
No, no, no. no. Faith. You know, on that, on that first album, that first year, when they were happening big, everyone was getting on fine. The band loved our version of them. That's what made me kick yeah. off for being stupid not to put them on it. They were fine because, I mean, they hardly played on two tribes either. Yeah. Um, but then they played completely on the power of love. You know, that was them. Just giving, giving you know, the journalistic situation back there was a lot, back then for music was a lot more um, antagonistic. Yeah. Than it feels at the moment. People are a little bit kinder now. Maybe it's because I'm old. Um, yeah, because your other regret is that you didn't kind of have them protected, as it were, the, the, the group. Was that right in terms of press? Well, no, what, what, I, what I said was, was, you know, the problem with the record business is you basically go into business with people who've never been in business before. You yeah. form a business with them. You put in your money and time. And if you do that with people who do business all the time, they understand that. Not that, not, not that I'm making any claim to be a businessman, but, but you know, you appreciate the fact that a good deal is one where everyone earns proportionally to what they put in. Very hard to get that with, with bands. The minute they get some success, they kind of think everybody's stealing from them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they they kind of get crazy in in a way because they've never been, especially especially if you sell a lot of records. Yeah, there's always loads of people around. You know, look how well they're doing off you. You know. Yeah, and you're there and you're vulnerable. You're not like some. You know, if you're signed to Universal, good luck, mate. You know, <laughs> yeah. whatever you think of your deal, you're fucked. Right? <laughs> um, if you go, if you try and you know, pull any shenanigans. But when they can see you and they can see that you're human, you know, and you see that nobody's perfect, you're, you're, you know, you're for the chop generally. And we, we were on a lousy deal through Ireland. Uh, you know, we, we, I mean, I think ZTT as a whole only got 14 points or something like that. And from that, we had to pay the artist. Right, I can write, yes. Yeah. Hopeless, and also you were taking immense amounts of time and had huge amounts of money to record two tribes. I think at one point Elvis Costello comes in, possibly in the same studio, I think, and records an entire album in the time yeah. that you're still working on two tribes. Is that can right? You sing, can you sing any songs from that album? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Ooh. you can sing you. two tribes though. Saucer of milk. No, 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 no. I wasn't being bitchy. Elvis Costello wrote some great songs. Yeah, yeah. They tended to be earlier on. Yeah. My aim is true and round there. Don't get me wrong. I'm a, I love Elvis Costello. One of my favourite albums. No, no, I mean, Is that one where he sings Backrack? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that record. But it's just, <laughs> I, won't, I won't do that anymore. No, no. I didn't do it in the book. I tr no. really, really tried hard not to be judgmental at all. Wait, what I love about the book is it's adventures in modern recording and it's about records isn't it it's yeah. about how records were made how certain records yeah, were made how they records, how yeah. they changed over the years you know and it's just amazing to see what a kind of complex business making a record ends up being you know what i mean i was just yeah. looking at the thing this morning where you you work with uh, with rod stewart on downtown train yeah 
um, because Rob Dickens thought this Tom Waits song thought that could be a big hit for Rod yeah. Stewart, and you were kind of brought in to do it, and you got him to sing it a couple of times in London and said, can you come and sing it tomorrow? He said, no, my my wife will only be in London for one day. So come to Los Angeles and we'll do it again in a few days' time. That's how it that's how it developed, isn't it? It developed like that. No, I got a guide vocal out of him on a Friday night. And I, and I said to him, why don't you stick around and, uh, and we'll, we'll have another go on Sunday? And, he, and Rod, I didn't know Rod at the time. I didn't just met him. Rod said, hmm, that's an interesting idea. And, that's uh, a good impression. It, very good like impression. His, his do that daughter, again. Do that again, like Trevor. That's a really good impression, Rod. <laughs> no, he's, uh, <laughs> no he, yeah, Rod could be very funny. Um, he said, yeah, yeah, I like the idea of that. And his driver said, nah, nah, she'll never let you. She'll never let you. There'll be trouble. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll probably, yeah, I can't, I can't do it. So I had to, I finished the record with this vocal that he'd given me on the Friday night. And then I flew over to LA the following Saturday. But the problem was, I was, you know, he's, it's funny, you just meet somebody and their voice sounds completely shagged and he's, ah, can I see you tonight in the downtown? He said, maybe the key should be higher. And I'm like, oh, I don't think so, right? I think this key's fine. He said, no, 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 when I get going, you know, when I get on, on the road, my, my, my voice goes up. But I didn't listen. I didn't listen. And when I got to L.A., I was in the wrong key, a minor third out, with a full orchestra on it and everything. There's so many the details about recording with Rod Stewart. Amazing. Does he, did you say that he just records, tends to record a track and then leaves the high notes till later? Was that right? Well, he did on Downtown Train. Tries to it patch was... in the high notes, yeah. No, there was one note. There was just one note where he, on the last course he goes, will I see you tonight? I think it's a D, which is a very high note. It's like a D on the E string of a guitar. And he said, and he just said, I'll do that note later. And I'll do it last. And when he came to do it, he said, I need a farting post. I was like, what's a farting post? It was a great a mic stand. <laughs> I shall pull back. And... And he kind of held it through his head, that thing he does, you know. It doesn't look right with me. My head's the wrong shape. But he he threw his head back. And uh, it was great. He looked amazing. <laughs> you know, when you were looking, you think, God, that's Rod Stewart. That's exactly what he looks like. What's he call <laughs> it? A farting post? Farting post, yeah. <laughs> there's a, I don't know if you've ever heard it. There's a, there's a famous old cassette that makes the rounds that's uh, about a farting competition between Lord Windermere and uh, somebody else. Have you never heard it? No, no, no. no. It's really funny because it's, it's between him and somebody else. And Lord Windermere nearly, Windermere nearly wins. He, you know, every time he, they go to fart, they go up and they grip the farting post. You never heard it. You should try it. No, Lord Windermere loses because he shits himself. All oh, right, <laughs> he's disqualified. Lovely. <laughs> Led a sheltered life. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anybody you really wanted to produce and uh, and never been able to? Well, I always had a sort of secret hankering. I always quite fancied working with Bob Dylan. I thought that would have been interesting, even though I could imagine that he'd be a little bit tough because Jimmy Iovine told me he was. Um, and sometimes when I was being interviewed in America, 
I used to say when people, you know, interviewers ask you who, who would you like to, I used to say things like, I'd love to have worked with Bob Dylan. I I I wanted, you know, can you imagine Bob Dylan sings Diane Warren? Or Bob Dylan sings songs from the shows, you know. Well, this is a where we belong. Yeah, Martin sang. It would be funny. Uh, Bob's Bob's quite funny, you know. I mean, uh, you know, one of my old the guy that engineered Downtown Train for me uh, worked with Bob a lot, you know. And he told me one time he was sitting in Studio Four, I think it. Uh, what's it called, you know, um, in LA, the big studio, called A&M Studios. And Bob walked in and sat next to him, said, which one is this, Steve? And Steve said, wrong studio, Bob. You're two <laughs> studios down the road. This isn't your song. <laughs> <laughs> Another one of my keyboard players played on a, played on a, Bob Dylan album, I don't know which one. Um, and he told me that um, nearly every song was in F, which is a strange key. He said there was one song they were having trouble with. They couldn't get it to work and it wasn't in F. And he thought just for a laugh, he'd say, why don't we try in F? And suddenly it worked in F. So I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I did a, I did a version of Desolation Row for one of my friends. At the you know, I had a band a couple of years back for something. We were recording something. And uh, at the end of it, I said, we're going to just do a quick version of Desolation Row. A friend of mine had written a song called Desolation Euro. And I remembered the, uh, I'm, I could still remember all the lyrics. And we did it, we did it in one take because it's not a difficult song. But what was fun about it was because there are about 15 verses, you know, me and the drummer tried to do something slightly different on every verse just to keep it interesting. And I thought, ah, this, this is what they did. This is how they did it. They were just following him, you know. Anyway, enough about Bob. <laughs> well, you can hear that. Was it, was it sounded like Lady of the Lowlands on Blonde on Blonde, but they, they had no idea how long it was going to go on, the musicians. Oh, you God. can hear them thinking... Yeah, they build to a big climax at the end of each verse because they think that's the last verse. Really, they don't realise they've got to play for the whole side of an album. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I know. I love the way he does everything virtually in one take, too. It's very exciting. But have you been to see him lately? No, I, no. I didn't see this tour. didn't no. see this tour. Don't go. Oh, really? Yeah, well, it's got the best reviews I've ever seen him get, virtually. Oh, the latest one? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, maybe it. he's doing something. I went to see him at the Albert Hall a couple of years back. Oh, well, that was a few years ago, yeah. Oh, yeah. I hated it. It was awful. <laughs> it was awful. I could, I could tell the band didn't know what he was going to play next. and I could feel them shifting around him all the time. Uh, and, you know, he was like, yeah, Johnny was a gambler. I, I You know, I mean, the cast of characters... I, you know, and yet he's so brilliant, isn't he? I mean, something like Tangled Up in Blue, you know, is still those kind of songs. They're so good. Well, maybe you'll get your opportunity to to produce him at some point. Yeah. And maybe that'll be, be a further chapter in the next. In the next is there going to be another volume of this? Is it going to be another volume? Well, I, you know, I I mean, I've I've only written about one song 
well, sorry, 20, about 20 songs. But, you know, there's so, there's so much more. There was a whole album with Yes No, four albums with Seal. I, I guess there wasn't the strife, though, you know. So some guy said to me the other day, Shoes, you like you have a problem with everything. I was like, I'm writing a book, man, you know. I'm not going to write about the ones that were dull and boring. <laughs> well, it's fantastic. It's, it's a really good I thoroughly book. enjoyed it. Highly recommended. Trevor Horn, Adventures in Modern Recording. Thanks. From ABC to ZTT, out now. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.